coming up on Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat. The other thing about Cristiano Ronaldo is he's probably entirely unaware that he does this. 90% of what's in our brains is machinery for processing visual environment, but most of it is unconscious or semi-conscious to us, right? We aren't really aware of what our eyes do, even though they're the biggest, what we're looking at is the biggest single influence of our behavior. That is the voice of our guest today, Doug Lamov. You can hear more from Doug very soon. But first, we have to say a big thanks to the overarching sponsor of the show, Hawora, a whole person performance well-being growth partner that looks to impact on individual and organizational health and well-being through four key pillars, physical, mental, social, and occupational. So do make sure to check it out at haworalife.com, H-A-U-O-R-A, life.com Welcome to Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat with your hosts David Clancy and Kieran Dunn. This is a podcast about high performance. What we are striving to achieve is to figure out what makes high performing individuals tick, why they do what they do and why they are successful. Enjoy a journey of stories, lessons and learnings. Today we spoke with Doug Lamov, teacher of teachers, coach of coaches, author of Teach Like a Champion and The Coach's Guide to Teaching. Doug Lamov is a former teacher and school principal. He helped found Uncommon Schools, a network of high-performing schools in underserved communities. He felt there was an overwhelming need for better schools, a moral imperative, and that's where we start this knowledge-rich dialogue. He's also worked with many professional sports organizations around the world. He teaches teachers how to teach better and coaches how to coach better. We discuss the similarities of teachers and coaches, achievement gaps, feedback loops, and how to give excellent, understandable feedback on a pitch. Doug opens up on perfect practice, skill acquisition, and the quiet eye, a common trait of the very highest performers in sport. We finished this interview with Doug explaining how to make better decisions, reducing cognitive load, and when intuition and instinct takes over in performance. For those of you who want to get better at anything, listen, intently. Doug Lamov, thanks very much for coming on the podcast today. We're both really looking forward to speaking with you. How are you? I'm doing really well and happy to be with you today. And just for for our Irish community and our listeners, where is home for you, Doug? I live in Albany, New York, which is a couple hours north of New York City, relatively small city here in the US. So Doug, you've had a big impact on us, hence why we reached out and wanted to have a conversation. Would you share with us just your journey to where you are today and where it started for you? Yeah, it was mostly an accidental journey. <laughs> so I started out as a teacher right out of university and did that for a few years. And I think maybe dreamed of becoming a college professor and went to do a PhD program in English literature. I imagine myself being one of those guys in a tweed jacket with the elbow patches talking about, well, James Joyce, obviously. (laughs) Uh, And uh, I quickly realized that, you know, that wasn't really about, wasn't really about teaching. And so I reached out to a bunch of people who, you know, I knew professionally and, and I stumbled into starting a school in in Boston with some colleagues and it was a charter school. You know, the idea that you could start a school was, I never imagined anything like that, but about a year and a half into it, the woman who was sort of the founder of the school and the director called me into her office and she said, this was like in 1997 when the, you know, the first like huge tech boom was happening. And she's, she had developed this information management system for our school. And she called me into her office. She said, guess what? And I said, what? She said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to take this tech management information. I'm going to Silicon Valley and I'm, I'm going to see where this goes and you're in charge. And I, 
I literally looked over my shoulder to see who, who else she might be talking to. But there was no one else in the room. Anyway, so I ended up uh, running the school and becoming the principal of it, and then ultimately starting a, a group of schools that were similar to, to the one that I'd, I'd run in, in Boston. The idea was you know, to work with students who grew up in, uh, in deprived communities and in communities where you know, most kids didn't go on to university and make schools that were just profoundly better and ensure their access to opportunity. And we would hire these really motivated and really smart young people to come in and, and change the world for kids. And they would come back to us and they'd say, actually, this is really, really hard. And there are all sorts of problems and challenges that no one prepared me for. What do I do when? You know, there were 15,000 15, fill in the blank for what do I do when? And so I kind of went out and I had done an MBA and sort of had, I put together this data set of, uh, based on the sort of what I'd learned in this MBA, MBA program of like, where are the teachers who teach high poverty kids who get incredible results? you know, despite kids with high poverty and they snuck into their classrooms and they were doing incredible things. It was amazing and inspirational. And sometimes they were sort of what you were supposed to do. And sometimes they were the opposite of what you were supposed to do. So brought my video camera with me. I started bringing my video camera with me just so that people would believe what they saw and so that I could break it up into game film. I, um, I played what we call soccer. You guys call football <laughs> uh, in university and, you know, just love sport. And so it just seemed natural to me to take little tiny videos of teachers teaching and break them up for teachers. So that became the book Teach Like a Champion, which is sort of, I guess, what I'm known for in, the, in education circles. But at some point, people in the sport area, in the area of sport came to me and said, hey, you know, coaching is teaching. Would you have any interest in helping us think about how to coach differently? Um, and that ultimately be, began the sort of five-year journey of my trying to answer questions that coaches raised that, that turned into the book The Coach's Guide to Teaching, which is uh, my latest. See it behind you there. <laughs> you have, you have trouble sleeping or something? Which is which is uh, well positioned. Right? We, we knew he was coming on. Look, there's so much there. What was it? Did you understand that was your purpose to, to start those schools? Like start a school and then start many schools to create opportunities for students from difficult situations. Yeah. Give them a really good opportunity. Where did that come from? Intrinsic motivation. What was it about that? I mean... Part of it was just knowing that it was possible. I, re I remember my very first teaching job was at a, an independent school in New Jersey, mostly for you know pretty wealthy and privileged kids. And I was talking to a teacher and he said, yeah, you know, many years ago, I started a school with a bunch of colleagues. And I remember thinking, like, can you do that? Like, how do you, how do you just start a, start a school? It seemed like the craziest idea I'd ever, I'd ever encountered. But, you know, I think, I think it's interesting because once institutions and organizations get into habits, it's often hard to change them. People get vested in doing things in the way that they're done. And sometimes I think the route to change is to, you know, it's easier to start something new than to change something that's in existence. And, you know, just the, the overwhelming need for better schools for kids who are cut off from opportunity, which is, you know, just a profound issue in this country was, it's a moral imperative. And so, um, you know, just one of the interesting things about it was that there's just so, you know, Everything needs, everything needs to be done. You have to, you just, you have to figure everything out. And uh, it's just a lot, a lot, a lot of problem solving. And one of the things that I think is similar about great teachers and great coaches is, is what a problem solving profession it is. You know, we talk all the time about the achievement gap. No matter what difficulty there is in teaching, there's always some teacher who has found a solution and solve, you know, solve the problem. And the problem isn't that education doesn't have solutions. It's that it doesn't scale solutions and it doesn't do a good job of finding positive outliers to solve these problems. There's data that suggests that the average, the average inner city school district 
50% of teachers leave after three years. You know, this is a job that they take knowing it's going to be really difficult and knowing they won't be paid well. And they leave within three years because they're not successful and they feel it every day. And no one wants to do a job where they're not successful. And the interesting thing is that they crash out of the profession oftentimes when there's someone, you know, a hundred yards down the hall from them who has the solutions to the problems that they keep them from success. And, you know, it's, it's on us to identify those people and help use their solutions to just get success. And it's just, so that idea is sort of what informed both my thinking about teaching and then ultimately, you know, even about coaching as well. So the identify the bright sparks, very good. Yeah. You mentioned looking back and problem solving, but you mentioned being so many problems being confronted with. Yeah. Would you take an approach of find, trying to find the biggest issue or the biggest challenge and identify a solution for that? Or would you look to small incremental changes that could compound over time and, and really have an effect down the line? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really interesting because you, you think the answer would be the first, but I think the answer is the second, which is, you know, you, you build up your solutions by tiny, small, incremental changes. One of the most profound books that I've read on, on change management is Chip and Dan Heath's book, Switch, which is like, uh, which I think is just a brilliant book. And one of the insights they say is, they have in the book is, you know, the size, we always assume that the size of, of the solution has to match to the side of the problem, size of the problem. But I think one thing that, you know, working in schools is just a laboratory for understanding that tiny changes, very small change you make in the way that you greet your kids when they come in the classroom or the way that you interact in some small way can have profound and cascading effects that shape the culture much more widely than you would, you would think that they would. And, uh, and so I, you know, I, I guess I'm just a believer and, you know, as a colleague of mine says, there, there is no hundred percent solution. There's only a hundred one percent solutions and you just have to like one by one build it up from, from each of those. In Teach Like a Champion, obviously you've got a huge part around the culture of, of errors. Yeah. And, and like for those students that are trying to get things wrong and things, things aren't always right and they're trying their best. How do you get over that and, and make people understand that it's okay to be wrong, but you know, minimizing yeah. it. Yeah, I think the um, I think this is a really profound idea, culture of error, uh, and it took me a while to really start seeing it in classrooms. So maybe I'll I'll describe something that I saw a math teacher say, which is he's walking around the classroom observing his students working on a set of problems. They're combining like terms, and he pauses them and he says he's see, he's seeing a consistent mistake, and he pauses the class and he says, "Guys, I need your attention up here. I'm seeing I'm seeing the same consistent mistake. I'm so glad I saw this mistake. It's going to help me to help you." And I think that's that's really fascinating because because he's honest about the fact that it's a mistake. And what he says is what he's trying to make students feel is like it's, it's a good thing because if we find the mistakes, it's easier to fix them. And it's actually kind of interesting, right? Like to study our mistakes. And if I can get students to the point where they discuss and examine their own mistakes without defensiveness and with comfort and actually with a little bit of fascination and build that psychological safety around it, then I have an incredible learning tool. But it's just very, it, it, it's hard to do because people are not naturally inclined to that and they have to, you know, the culture has to constantly remind them of, of both the okayness of making mistakes and the benefits of studying mistakes. And those, you know, those two things happen together, which is I have to, I have to make students comfortable sharing their mistakes. And then once they share them, they have to learn a lot from them and feel like they're valuable. That in many cases, you know, the outcome Buy-in is not a precondition; it's an outcome. Right? If I do things well, if I teach things well, they come. They, they become more bought into the methodology. Of course, people are, are skeptical or reticent at first. And bridging to sport, where sometimes it's the livelihood of an athlete, 
that they have yeah. to perform and admitting a weakness or facing a challenge may seem that they have a, a barrier that's going to prevent their performance yeah. going to the next level. What would you say about a coach or someone who's looking to create that environment of the culture of errors to be okay? What's the first step to take to transition from getting a group of high talented people who don't admit failure or don't admit any weaknesses to having a collective group that empowers each other by admitting their openness? I mean, it's such a profound question because it's important in any learning environment, but it's especially important in an environment where people's identity is tied up in their own excellence, right? Like, um, and if I'm not, if I admit my mistakes, does it mean I'm not good anymore? Uh, and at the same time, you know, as a, as a, as a coach that I, I worked with said, you know, the way you build relationships with athletes is by making them better and proving that you can make them better. Like, yes, you know, they, they want to know that you care about them and they like it when you come to practice and you high five them and, you know, slap them on the back. But for the most part, that won't endure unless you prove to them that you can, you can make them better. So I think it's, you know, there, there are two pieces here. One is I think I have to, I have to, you know, my language is really important. Every time I talk about mistakes, I think just like I do an activity with coaches sometimes where we take that phrase that that math teacher said, which is, I'm so glad I saw that mistake. It's going to help me to help you. And we translate it into a sports setting, which is, you know, a lot of times when guys make a mistake, a coach will say, guys, we've been working on this all week and we talked about pressing all week. You know, we're, why, why aren't we pressing? Right. And the better, you know, it starts with me as a coach and saying, we're still not sharp enough in coordinating our pressing. I'm glad to know it now. It's better to find it out now than on Saturday, right? Which is just diffusing the, the anger and the frustration and the blame. And even if you want to say, and we've got to figure it and, and it's really important that we figure it out and we focus on it. So now let's study it. Then I think I'm tying it to the notion of like, the outcome is going to be, we're going to be better and we're going to be successful. And then maybe I even want to narrate that back to players and say, you know, like we had a really good week. We struggled sometimes, but when we struggled, we were honest about it and we talked about it and we worked hard to, to fix what was going on. And now, you know, and now look at us and now, you know, now I hope you guys can see the difference as well. One of the best books I've read recently is Peps McRae's book, uh, Motivated Teaching, where he just talks about motivation and how profound the two most profound influences on motivation are success, right? If I feel like I'm successful and I'm on the path to success, that motivates me to continue. And then the second influence is, is what my peers are doing, what, you know, what the social norms are in the group. And so I have to shape that so that players see others around them comfortable with mistakes and responding to mistakes. And so part of that is I think I have to show that constructive conversations happen for everyone, right? That like we need to do this better is not something that just happens to the, the strugglers, but like I would start by, have, by correcting the best athlete in the group. Right. And maybe even presetting him and saying, like, I'm going to correct you today. And I want you to like show, you know, I want you to model for the rest of the guys what it means to, to discuss a poor decision so that it's clear that correction and getting better is something that, you know, is part of the process for every athlete on the team. And to chunk that up a little bit for those people in the corporate setting, for athletes, high performers yeah. that understand that it's okay to make mistakes, to learn from them and use those as opportunities feedback and that feedback loop you, you already mentioned the video you would take of, of somebody to give some some constructive criticism as it were yeah what's your sense of feedback i mean we we've read you have a big chapter on feedback there and there's yeah. some nice stories about minor league baseball with mark manella and those sort of stories so where, where does feedback come into this loop for you yeah feedback is fascinating because it's probably the single most common thing that we do as coaches you know, we're constantly, and I would just distinguish, you know, how do you distinguish feedback from teaching? The first time I explain something to you and describe what I want us to do as a team or as a group, that's teaching. And after you try it and I tell you how you're doing, 
how we're doing, that's feedback. You know, and we do it constantly, whole group, individual, during the game, during training, in the car, on the way home, spouse to husband. For me, a lot. I get a lot. of. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I think, there's a, you know, because it's so familiar to us, we often overlook it and don't think a lot about it. And I think maybe one of the most one of the most common things that I think is maybe two ideas that I just think are really fundamental about feedback. One is to be aware of the limits of working memory. And we can really only think consciously about a very small number of things at any time, one or two. And typically when we're giving feedback, we would try and accelerate someone's growth and development by telling them five things to work on at once. And when I do that, in the words of a a coach that I worked with in New Zealand, when you chase five rabbits, you catch none, right? My, um, just to put it in like in a, in a, a football example, we're working on building out of the back and I pause my players and I say, pause guys, when we're building out of the back, ball needs to be struck at pace. It needs to be on the ground and it needs to be struck to the back foot of, uh, of our teammates. And we need to receive the ball with our eyes up and open up our hips. Uh, and then we've got to press high with the outside backs to make sure that uh, we're aggressive about getting into space. Got it? Go. <laughs> I, I'm sort of looking at your faces right now. So let's assume that all of that feedback is correct, right? It's good. It's good feedback. It's way too much for an athlete to respond to. And so what, what happens to the athletes after I say go? Well, either one, they're so confused by so many things that they have the sort of uh, deer in the headlights look and they do none of it, or they're trying to do all of those things at once. And it requires so much of their working memory that their performance falls apart or each player chooses at random based on their best guess, the one thing that they really can follow through on and they try and work on it. But because I don't know what each player is really working on from that group of five things, I can't really give them feedback to say, yes, that's much better at opening up your hips, Kevin. Like, and so, and it's really hard for me to see whether they're making any progress. So the next stoppage that I make is going to have exactly the same five teaching points again. And we're going to feel like we're on this sort of treadmill of no progress. And so disciplining myself to be like, boys, we're building out of the back. Ball needs to be struck at pace on the ground. Let me see that now. Go. Yes, Kevin, that's what we're looking for. More Donald. Strike it harder, right? Then suddenly I have a manageable amount of feedback that I can use. And I can see my player. I can give my players feedback on how they're doing. And they can see themselves improving in this sort of sense of the efficacy of feedback. Then there's more buy-in from from athletes. And so I think just this self-discipline of like one thing at a time actually get there faster. But of course, you know, every coach I know tries to squeeze in one more piece of feedback to make players better, faster, and it has the opposite result. One other tiny thing that I think is important here is that we often give feedback at like a stoppage uh, or like a session. We get people together and we say, we need to, when we're building out of the back, we need to, we need to strike the ball at pace on the ground. Our, the pace of our passes is incredibly important. Go. Then players start playing and we start talking about something else. Great move, Kevin. Way to get into space, Carlos. Right. And so when my live feedback does not align to my stoppage feedback or when the feedback that I give employees when, you know, during the work week does not align to the professional development session that I did on Friday, the message that I'm sending is what we talked about, I've forgotten already and I'm already on to something else. And so if it's not that important to me and I'm not concentrating on it and I'm not attending to it, it shouldn't be that important to you. Much more effective would be to make that stoppage about pace of ball pace of the past, building out of the back, and then start talking to players about it. Yes, Carlos, that's what we're looking for. More, Donald, I know you can do it. Let me see you really strike that ball. And now players know that like, when we stop to talk about something, I look to see whether you do it. I care. Like, Follow through is, is important to me. And, and I also can help them understand how well they're doing it. And I just think it's one of the most important keys to, to feedback working. Right, The feedback works because people try it after I 
give it to them. They don't really learn that much when I'm talking to them. They learn when they take what I talk to them about and try to put it into action. And so I need to just build a culture of follow through. You have a process about that, that information, that feedback, receiving, trying, and then reflecting. <clears throat> the ideal reflection, I believe, my interpretation is that you're trying to get them to encode it into long-term memory so they can retrieve the knowledge yeah. when they're in chaos. How do you structure that reflection piece? Do you ask players and coaches to try and do things after training and look back on the process or would it be in the moment right then after you strike the ball? Yeah, it's great. I I think really both in some ways. I think the key is implicit in your question is the reflection happens after the feedback. A lot of times, you know, we give someone feedback and they reflect on it. Well, I can't do that because, and what I want to build is a culture where you're like, maybe try it first and see if it works. And then we'll talk about whether you can or you can't. Lots of times people disrupt the cycle of feedback by reflecting on it before they've tried it. So I think the key is that was, which was kind of in your question, which is like, try it first and then we can reflect on it. And I think that can, can be, and should be both like in the moment, how did that feel? Was that better? Yes. I look better to me too. What else can we do? And at the end, guys are really focused today on the speed of our passes. What did you notice? Did it make a difference when we were attacking? You know? So I, I think, in fact, what I, I think one of the reasons why, being intentional about feedback is so important is because it, I want to socialize my players to, to own the process themselves and constantly be reflecting on feedback, both the feedback they get from me, but the feedback they give themselves and the feedback they notice in the environment. And so I think having them, right, that has to be built into the culture, which is I have to, if I want people to be constantly reflective, I have to build an environment that socializes constant reflection, just tells them, you know, right away how they're doing, ask them questions about how they're doing, et cetera. And to build further on that, what about the knowledge acquisition piece, like retaining all that? So coaches giving clear, you know, advice, not five points of feedback. The player is starting to take a bit of ownership, starting to to be a bit more self-directed. There's understanding. They learn something on Monday, learn something on Tuesday, learn something on Wednesday, prepping for the weekend. How can they retain all that? And how do they understand what's really worth retaining? Yeah. I think this is one of the most overlooked areas in, in learning period, both in schools and in a sports setting, which is the role of, it's really the role of forgetting. Uh, and Harry Fletcher Wood, who's one of my favorite education authors, just describes the difference between performance and learning. Performance is what I can do during training. So, you know, we're working on building out of the back and at the end of training, we do it really well and we're really sharp. And this is Wednesday. And I think, great, we're going to crush it on Saturday. We look really good. And Saturday rolls around and we're a mess. What went wrong? The answer is as soon as players walked off the field on Wednesday afternoon, they began forgetting. And the role of forgetting, you know, forgetting is a ruthless, tireless opponent. But we don't really account for it. We somehow believe that people will remember everything that they've learned. And what science tells us is that unless we get it into long-term memory, people won't be able to use it later. And to get it into long-term memory, I have to come back to it and use retrieval practice, which is to review it and call it back into working memory after people have begun to forget something. And so I think the message from that is there's almost nothing that you can learn well in a single, in a single encounter with it in a single interaction that if I want it, if I want to distinguish between learning and performance, I have to make sure that come back to it. Graham Nuttall, uh, another great education writer says, you know, has done a bunch of research that says, you know, students in the classroom learn something when they've, when they've, experienced it and reflected on it three or four times minimum. 
and that students who don't encounter an idea three or four times do not learn it in the long run. And so the key is repetition and and retrieval. And it's so easy to overlook because I see my players able to do something or people able to do something at the end of a session. And I, I assume that that is what they'll be able to do, you know, a week from now. And they don't account for the fact that 24 hours later, they've probably forgotten more than half of it. And a big point from that is as physiotherapists, we try to replicate match-like scenarios when we're rehabbing physically. And we yeah. do it to enhance the mental side of it as well. But creating that chaos, that match-like yeah. scenario is very difficult. What would you say as a piece of advice for a coach to give to players in terms of retaining information in training when it's very structured versus going into the chaotic environment of a game? I think it's one of the big issues in, in, in learning, which is how do I teach players not just to do it in practice, but to have it transfer to the game? I think one of the perception is one of the keys here, which is unless players practice reading the cues that tell them to do something, they're unlikely to use it in the game. In other words, if my training session does not demand decision-making and perception, right? I learn, we learn pressing, but I don't learn when to press and what tells me to press. I won't, I won't learn to do it in the game. So just, like just a very small example of this, a coach that I really admire in the U.S. Was, was working with another group of coaches and they were talking about the session that the coaches were running and it was on coordinating play in the midfield. And his question was, who starts with the ball? And the coach said, well, the number, you know, the center midfielder feeds it into the center forward and we play from there. And what he said was, when the center midfielder feeds the ball into the center forward, we already have the ball. And everyone is already in position. So, of course, it's easy for us to like create the shape that we want and attack. But in the game, we win the ball from the opposition and we're, are, we're out of shape because we've been defending. And we have to fight to earn the ball. And fighting to earn the ball causes us to get out of shape even more. And then we have what's hard is transitioning from chaos into order. And so if I really want – his point was if you want this, what you're working on your, with your players to transfer – they have to, the ball has to start with the opposition. They have to earn the ball and then create create order of the space. And I don't think necessarily the training should start there, but if I want it to transfer at some point, it has to end there from game realistic model where I have to read the cues and then cause the, cause the context that I need to be able to execute the skill to happen. And that's, that's much more complex and a lot of training environments don't do that, right? We try and give players lots and lots and lots of opportunities for the thing to happen. So once it's predictable that it's going to happen, right? It's predictable that we're going to be pressing because we all know we're working on pressing. And so then I'm in my mind, I've already started to rehearse the cues for pressing. That's very different from, we just gave the ball away and I need to decide how and when to press from a state of chaos. So just, I think those perceptive, uh, those perceptive cues about how to initiate the movement are, I think, I think it's one of the biggest barriers to, uh, to transfer love the preamble you have in your book when you're giving your background about uncommon schools and MBA, but sandwiched between it all is you're the worst football soccer player of a decade. How was in college, right? <laughs> it was so bad. <laughs> showed, showed a bit of vulnerability there. And, and what, what I'm interested in about that is skill acquisition, right? Practice makes perfect. You, you have a book out on that, Deliberate Practice. Yeah. Say now you were a terrible player, but you wanted to be the best free kick specialist in the world. Mm. You want it to be Beckham 2.0, or you want to, or it's a free throw, or it's a rugby penalty. What's the best framework you'd give that person that's really trying to hone in? Maybe it's driving the ball off off the tee if you're playing in the yeah. PGA Championship. How can you really help someone get better yeah, this, at that? This skill? is great. 
a great, and I should, I just want to distinguish, I think what we're talking about is like, is, is skill acquisition here, which is an individual endeavor versus, you know, group endeavor, even like taking a free kick, it's an individual endeavor within a, within a group game. And so we're not, we're, because I think the answer is different depending on what we're trying to accomplish, but really for skill acquisition, I think the key is to understand two things. One is the importance of retrieval practice, and then some subsets of it, which are understanding the difference between blocked, serial, and randomized practice. And it goes back to the idea of, of skill transfer that you were talking about before. And my first instinct, whenever I want to work on a skill, is to practice it over and over and over again in rapid succession. And that's valuable to some degree, especially when I'm trying to this. Let's just take a really simple example of it's, it's a free kick. And I want to just, I really want to make sure that I have mastered the technique of wrapping my foot around the ball. So maybe I do 10 in a row. But if I really want the skill to transfer, I then have to tr- change my training environment to go. Then that's blocked practice doing 10 in a row. From let's say I want to take three free kicks where I'm wrapping my foot around the ball and trying to dip the ball over the wall, three free kicks where I'm trying to chip it over, chip it over the wall for a header and three free kicks where I'm trying to, you know, do something else with the ball. When I shift from the skill that I'm trying to learn to some other skill, all the details of what I'm trying to do suddenly go out of my working memory and I'm distracted by some other skill that I'm trying to learn or some other aspect of the skill that I'm trying to implement. And so then if I go back to the original skill, it's harder for me because all of the details have come out of my working memory, I have to strain to remember and to execute. And that strain is actually what causes it to encode in my long-term memory. And so though our instinct is to do 10, 15, 20 in a row, it actually would be smart to do like one or two, then go do something else, strike the ball a different way, come back and do one or two more, go strike the ball a different way, come back and do one or two more because it's hard. It, you will be less proficient in the short run in practice, but more proficient in the long run because you will remember more. And then the third stage is to go to randomize, which is like um, right before I strike the ball, someone gives me a cue or gives me a setup or sets the wall that causes me to have to react to a setting. And I never know what set, what type of ball I have to strike. And there I have to practice getting myself into the mentality on the, you know, to strike it right the first time when I'm distracted by other things and when I don't know in advance that I'm going to be striking it this way. And that, um, again, gets it to sort of builds long-term memory and gets it at skill transfer a little, little transferability a little bit. So block serial, it's, the concept here is interleaving, yeah. you know, which you can read about in, in make it stick. Great, yeah. Make it stick is a great, is a great example of that. Yeah. I think yeah. a new Netflix documentary of coming bend it like Beckham two with Doug Lamar. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you want to like bend it onto the golf course behind the, behind the, behind the, <laughs> the soccer pitch, maybe <laughs> coming out this fall. Yeah. Brilliant. That's right. um, just in terms of the, the quiet eye, this is the final yeah. piece that I was really intrigued by yeah. as well. And we've spoken about it that when we're looking at a chaotic scenario, yeah. you often see the shifty eyes and someone trying to take in a lot of information. And that's normally is the go-to for an amateur or unskilled or novice person is to look at loads, try and take in as much information as possible. Except I did actually see a sports science documentary years ago on Cristiano Ronaldo. They assessed where his eyes would track prior to him receiving the ball or prior to a certain skill move. And what he would do is he would look at the angle of the, the hip, knee, ankle, and then try and make a decision made based on which direction he would go. So he seemed to have what you call the quiet eye. Yeah. And I love if you could share your opinion of how an athlete could go about achieving that. Yeah, well, it's, it's fascinating because the other thing about Cristiano Ronaldo is he's probably entirely unaware that he does this. 90% of what's in our brains is machinery for processing visual environment, but most of it is, is 
unconscious or semi-conscious to us, right? We aren't really aware of what our eyes do, even though they're the biggest, what we're looking at is the biggest single influence of our behavior. So much of an athlete's success is their visual habits and what they're looking at, right? You can't make the right decision if you're not looking at the right thing. But the interesting thing that they discover when they do things like put eye tracking glasses on athletes is that you would think an expert athlete would take in more information than a novice athlete. You'd be like, oh, that's, you know, like seeing more, that's the mark of expertise, but it's, it's actually the opposite. An expert athlete looks at less. You know, one of the things we know about attention is that selective attention, which is the single biggest driver of what we learn. We learn what we pay attention to. Selective attention is as much about tuning things out as it is about what we tune into because the visual environment is so complex. And so actually what a great athlete does is their expertise is sort of knowing what to look at and their eyes rest naturally, often without knowing it on the most important things. And they're not nervously looking around at 15 different things because they know where the, where the signal is going to come from. And for the most part, it's a happy accident when this happens. Like did, did, did someone train, explain to Cristiano Ronaldo to do this? Um, probably not. So I think, so what are some things that we can do about it? One is I think constantly placing training in a visual environment that looks like the game so that I'm just exposed to a lot of the visual cues of the game. But also, you know, I think one of a coach's key job is to understand what the right visual cues are. One of my favorite questions for an athlete is instead of what should you do is what should you look at? Right? Because um, what I'm trying to do is guide you to like, to rest your eyes on the queue. There's this actually, there's this great video that I just posted on my, on my blog of John Barnes. I don't know if you saw, if you've ever seen this video, I don't even know where I got this video, by the way. I'm like, poor John Barnes. He's clearly on like vacation or something. He's like wearing a pair of sunglasses and he's like, so, and this is very impromptu bit of group of boys that he's, he's coaching. Someone says, John, come over here and teach the boys something, you know, it's like, uh, he practically has a cocktail on the other hand for all. (laughs) So, but, but he starts teaching them. And what he says is that lots of players, including in the premier league, start with the move that they want to, th- they move that they want to do. But he says the way to way to learn to dribble is you watch the front leg of the defender. And that when you attack the defender, you know, the defender's going to come at you side on and he's going to try and steer you towards the way that his body is facing. And so you want to attack him on a line that's basically 90 degrees perpendicular to the angle of his front leg to force him to, to force him to move his front leg back and to unweight himself. And that's when you, you know, if you can get him to move his, his front leg back, then you cut, then you cut against the green. And basically he's saying dribbling starts with perception. And what he's doing there is teaching, teaching players to begin the process with their eyes and, 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 and guiding their eyes. And so I think there's a, there's a ton of research coming out about this, you know, that like the key to shooting a free throw is to look at the back of the rim. Well, the interesting thing is that no one really knows, like what they know is that, better free throw shooters look at the back of the rim as opposed to looking at the front of the rim or other places where free throw shooters might look like. I think it's interesting. That's a correlation, not a cause, right? So does looking at the back of the rim make you better or is there something else that that's, that's causer? But I think the notion that um, if we want players to perform better and make better decisions, we have to think seriously about training their eyes. Therefore, like, build perception rich environments and ask questions and guide them to the cues. And that part of our responsibility as coaches is to figure out what the cues are that tell us what should we be looking at? What do I study to make the decision? And I, I'm always struck when I go to, you know, football license class courses, like it's not as common a part of the curriculum, right? Everyone can tell you what pressing should look like, but they're less clear on like what the body cues are and what the, or what the tactical cues are to tell us when to press. And I just think that has to become 
part of our study as coaches. You mentioned the shooting at the back of the rim on Masterclass. Steph Curry has a Masterclass. And interestingly enough, one of the preambles is that's where he focuses. Yeah. It you know, it's not front of the rim. He's a pretty good shooter too. He's a pretty good shooter. Yeah. Yeah. He kind of knows what he's talking about, right? What's his name? Steph Curry? Never heard of him. <laughs> Stephen. I don't know. Um, <laughs> my last interest really, Doug, and is, is about decision-making. You know, we, mm. we're kind of touching on a lot of different aspects about reducing cognitive load. And what's it like for those guys that are trying to get to the point when it's about instinct, intuition, yeah. and not overly think? I mean, I went to golf lessons recently and I was thinking of 56 things before I hit the ball. No wonder I missed the ball and nearly broke my iron. So yeah. how can I, how can I flip that and not think about so many things? You kind of said it's the one thing, not the five things earlier on. So, yeah, I mean, I think the interesting I think there are two forms of decision-making that we need to think about. And one of them is fast decision-making, right? Many times in a sporting environment, we have to make a decision faster than we can use our working memory. One of the most, Daniel Willingham, the cognitive scientist says that we've learned more about how the brain works in the last 25 years than in the previous 2,500 combined, <laughs> but actually we're <laughs> kind of slow to bring a lot of the, this cognitive science into the teaching sector. But one of the really fascinating things we've learned is how long it takes to have a conscious thought. And the answer is six tenths of a second, which seems like a really arcane piece of information, but actually it's hugely important because there are lots of times when we have to make decisions faster than six tenths of a second, right? The average fastball in the major leagues arrives at home plate fast in four tenths of a second. How are some hitters great? Even I would say in hitting a, hitting a golf ball, you are making tiny reactions to your initial part of your own swing to, you know, like in instant time. And whenever, when that happens, you're, you, you, you have to skip working memory because working memory is not fast enough. And so those perception action linkage, right? You the perception becomes the decision. You have an action that you've learned that you instantly associate with your perception. So I think that, I think the key here is that your ability to process information quickly is a function of your background knowledge and the level of your, of your knowledge. And that's, that's really interesting because most people dismiss knowledge and they think that decision-making can happen without knowledge. Um, but in fact, you know, decision-making is, is knowledge specific. And so if I wanted to accelerate or increase the quality of decisions, the first thing I should do is inform players, athletes, Participants need to have a really rich understanding of what they're trying to do and a really strong vocabulary because vocabulary is the primary tool that we use to conceptualize ideas. And the more I know, the more I understand what I see. So to just put this in like a, a football analogy, if I talk about football coaches all the time, talk about like getting into space between the lines. And I guarantee you that 90% of the footballers I'm talking to have no idea what they mean by that. But if I can, explain what that means and have players have a really strong understanding of it. Then when they are watching the game, they will suddenly start to see examples of getting between the lines and getting in between the lines differently and getting in between the lines in different situations. And they'll learn more from the visual environment when they, you know, you, you learn in correspondence to how much, you know, going into the setting. If I, if I want strong perception, which is the key to the key to decision-making, I have to really spend time on knowledge uh, and and particularly, I'd say vocabulary, which is the, the single most important form of knowledge. Well, given us so much knowledge and value, that almost seems greedy to ask more questions, but we have to ask this final one. Okay. We ask everybody, everybody that comes on the show, 
What does high performance mean to you, Doug? Oh, wow. Um, high performance, I guess I would say that that means to me maximum acceleration of learning, which is like a, a high-performing environment is an environment where coach has the capacity to make people better at the fastest possible rate. I'm sure for some people it means like the most elite performers, but to me, like if I'm if I'm looking for a high performance environment, what it means is we're better at getting people better faster. Doug, we'd like to say thank you very much for helping the two of us get better. And for everyone listening to this one, I'm sure you all would have learned an awful lot to, to get better at whatever you do. So wishing the very best. Thank you very much for giving us your time all the way from Albany. Very much appreciate it, Doug. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Next meeting, we'll I'll have to do in person over there over there in Ireland. I'll just wait for those plane tickets to arrive. And Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> no problem. Check the mailbox. As soon as they let me out of this house, I'm happy. <laughs> <laughs> More than happy to make it happen. Brilliant. Thanks, you guys. Thank Thanks you. a minute. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat, a story of high performance. This was brought to you by Howora, a whole person wellbeing company founded and run from Dublin, Ireland. Find out more at howoralife.com, spelt H-A-U-O-R-A life.com. Please rate, review and share the podcast. Some people want it to happen. Some wish it would happen. Others make it happen. The GOAT, Michael Jordan. <laughs>